Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. The Law Report with Michael Matwening Bell, Kaya FM 95.9. A very good evening to you and welcome to the Law Report. My name is Michael Matwining. Bill, good to be with you this Wednesday evening where once again we traverse other issues of law and uh, what do I have for you tonight? We're talking labor law and you would have seen in, I guess for the last eight, nine years, the issue of labor broking has been central to debate. It's been central to news and that's what we're talking about. When we're talking about labor broking, you know, often people are talking about job security. They're saying, hang on, I'm working, but what is my job security? I'm called a temp. I'm called a fixed term contract. I'm called a permanent employee. Or who do I actually work for? Do I work for this company or do I work for that company where somebody has what we call a tripartite um, employment relationship? So that's the whole complexity that has been brought about by labor broking. Many unions and what is described as social partners, unions, business, etc., a lot of work has gone into trying to um, regulate um, this thing called labor broking. And, of course, it culminated in um, some laws being um, uh, amended in 2015. But notwithstanding that amendment, there still seems to be a lot of cases. And those cases are focused around how do you interpret some of these laws? What does that mean for Michael today going to work tomorrow? Who is my employer? Can I be dismissed just like that because what is called a client has terminated the contract? What is what is the law? And that's what we're talking about. I've lined up um, a three guests to help me understand some of these issues. So I'm looking forward, most importantly, uh, to receiving your calls on any labor issue or every labor question that you may have, whether it pertains to labor broking or not. Um, but my my greatest focus is around job security because sometimes when you look at when you're looking at labor broking or or labor broking presents a certain regime on how do you dismiss somebody who is um, employed by a labor broker how do you employ somebody who's not sure if they are in a fixed term contract or whether employed by a labor broker or whatever the case might be so this is literally a show for you and you do give us a call the number to dial as always 086 I look forward to engaging with you and to answering all of your questions that's the law report tonight Know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matuening Bill. Thank you very much to Dr. Cindy Fonsell. You can look forward to yet another show from her tomorrow at 7 p.m. Uh, for now, we continue our show and let me welcome um, all of my guests joining me on the line. Uh, Mutusi uh, Mudisana, he's an attorney um, uh, at uh, Pukuja Attorneys. And Dade Mudisana, good evening and thank you so much for talking to me this evening. Good evening, Michael. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, and also, Sfiso uh, Skanjana, Chief Economist. Uh, Sfiso, thank you so much for talking to us on the report. Are you well? Great. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. You're more than welcome. And uh, as well as uh, Moleko Pakedi, uh, Founding Deputy Director, uh, General Secretary for the South African Federation of Trade Unions, for short, uh, SAFTU. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, uh, Moleko. Uh, good evening. All right, not on the line as yet. I mean, let's just maybe, you know, have a lay of the land. And, and we talk about labor broking and it's, 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 it's no doubt an important issue. And, 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 and it's an issue that has been driven to a large extent by trade unions in this country. Um, if you've just tuned in, uh, do give us a call. We're talking labor broking. We're talking labor law. 086 If I can just invite you, Sfiso, and maybe just give us a, 
a point of view as an economist on, you know, the lay of the land when we're talking about our labor laws and labor broking in that context? Yeah, I think there's an important historical story in the context of the South African economy that we really must reflect on. And it starts um, actually, interestingly, in 1925 when we had the Rand Revolt. Um, the, the almost It's actually the deadliest um, labor strike in the history of the country where about 3,000 workers eventually uh, clashed with police and ended up dying. And and interestingly, that started on the back of um, white uh, mine workers who, in essence, were upset about the fact that black mine workers were cheaper labor. And this was after World War One, and therefore, in essence, were taking their jobs because of you know, um, in a depressed economic marketplace, you'd want to take your cheapest um, form of labor. And then this gave birth um, into what then became the the the, the collective bargaining context in South Africa. I think as of 1926, um, on the back of J.J. Smuts. Interestingly enough, then that followed into 1956 in terms of the uh, Conciliatory Act, and and only insofar as 1979, actually, when uh, the black worker was defined as an employee in the context of labor bargaining, and therefore they could get full benefits of labor bargaining. And what that then resulted is a picture that we see today that uh, the largest contributor of, of, of inequality in South Africa is wage inequality. Mm. And what's quite interesting is that when you look at the role in which unions have played in South Africa, they actually um, have enabled workers to have a wage premium when they are unionized. And so there's something close to about 20%, which is a unionized union premium um, compared to non-union workers in South Africa. And when you contextualize also that to public sector workers, where only 24% of public sector workers are unionized. Mm. You start to see then how um, important uh, unions continue to be in labor bargaining in general, continues to be in an economic marketplace where private sector is supposed to be the largest economic engine. And, and so when we, when we even talk about that, I mean, that's sort of raising yet another debate around how many or, you know, how much of our population actually enjoy the, the benefit of, of, of unions because – the thing about unions, they, they depend and they thrive on scale. So you find that the smaller employees, or the, I beg your pardon, the smaller employers are finding it a lot more difficult to organize um, than would be big corporate where in one go you can find 200 employees. And, 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 and when you then talk about you know, this other component, the other 80% that is not unionized, um, and their power of of bargaining. Maybe just talk a little bit about that, because it seems to me uh, that, that 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 there is a gap, and 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 one doesn't know whether is that a is is that a, a good gap that's part of our democracy, or 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 or, or it presents some some other problems. Yeah, I mean, so we see a, 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 a gender pay gap of um, I think it's about twenty four percent. Now it used to be at about 18% and the race pay gap of close to 30%, I think it's about 33% actually. Yeah. And, and, and that, 
that's the way in which corporate South Africa right now is behaving. Right? Mm. And and you see in countries like Iceland, for example, who actually criminalized uh, wage disparity, wage wage um, based on gender and or race. Mm. And so and so we certainly see that we are in an economic marketplace where similarly qualified people are still not being paid uh, the the dues. And therefore, I think what unions have done is that they've, um, I think, emphasized the fault lines that are existing in our wage structure in the, in the context of the African economy. And that's quite important because, um, again, when you look at even issues of labor participation, people who come from poorer households in South Africa often become the people who also become more discouraged in terms of, of job seeking earlier than others. Mm. Because there's a cost to job seeking. You've got to take a taxi to get to the job interviews and, and, and. Mm-hmm. And also, you, you know, there's, there's other um, dimensions. It's what we call multidimensional poverty, where you, it, it's issues of nutrition, health, education, etc. And so when you look at the labor complex in South Africa, we have to look at it in a system thinking point of view and say, this is not just a, a, a conversation simply that our oh, unions are problematic, all they want to do is organize strikes. It's, it's a conversation where the World Bank 2003 used to say that um, our labor laws are too rigid. 2003 came back 2015, the World Bank and World Economic Forum came back and said, actually, in the South African context, labor bargaining is probably the one thing that will actually play an important role in reducing inequality and wage inequality. And so we really need to take a system of thinking and a system's view when we look at the labor context complex in South Africa. If I can bring you in um, uh, uh, on, on, on this question, I mean, th- the debate around labor broking has been going on for quite a while. If you can just paint a picture on, you know, what when we were celebrating in and around 2015, what was the change that was being introduced? And, um, and, and, and then I guess as a follow-up, uh, as we have the conversation further, I would want to know how those changes have had an impact in 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 the lives of both business and the worker. But but I guess a good start is just to give us a clear view of what it is that we were celebrating with these amendments. Now, in in 2014, and uh, you know, Ned the legislature came together to to introduce what we call the Labor Relations Amendment Act of 2014, which uh, took effect in January 2015. Mm-hmm. Now, what those amendments essentially do is that they they add to Section 198 of the LRA, as it were then, they've added uh, four subsections which uh, effectively define what mm-hmm. is temporary employment service, which also has the ability to deem employees who are hired by labor brokers, you know, be deemed as employees of the client of the labor broker itself. So what it effectively does is that it, uh, in effect, made sure that employees are treated on the same condition, whether they are working for a labor broker or whether they're working for the client of the labor broker. So mm. the position before that would be that the labor broker would engage employees at the insistence of a client, and those employees would be rendering a service at the client. Mm-hmm. Now, you find a situation where 
you know, the employees of the labor broker performing the same duties as the employees at the client, but they're being treated on less favorable terms and conditions of employment. Sure. Now, now, in that situation, the 2015 or 2014 LRA Amendment Act, what it then does is that it says, if you read the entire uh, amendment of the law together, it says that none of those employees must be treated on terms and conditions which are less favorable than the, than the terms and conditions of the employees at the actual employer. So the employees of the labor broker must be treated on the same terms and conditions of employment as those at the employer because they will be performing the same work, mm. essentially. So that amendment became very important because it made sure that there's parity in this employment relationship. A lot of employers, what they, they would do previously before this amendment is that they would, they, they, as I said earlier, they would engage workers under the labor broker in order to escape, you know, treating them on pain terms and conditions. So the celebration came when we now started having, and I'm glad we have a soft tool we have a soft tool leader on, 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 on the line as well. He will also chip in later. Mm. When, when NUMSA then started, knowing NUMSA, they started taking these amendments to heart and applying them in those industries where their workers are being treated on less favorable conditions. Mm-hmm. Right? And, you know, they went to the CCMA, went to the Labor Appeal Court, and went to the Constitutional Court in 2018, if my memory serves me well, and won the case. Mm-hmm. And the court said, look, the amendments as they are make sure that employees are not treated differently, whether they're engaged by a labor broker or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about this three months thing. How does that work um, in, in real life? So I work for uh, company A, that's the labor broker or temporary employment services provider. Mm-hmm. And then they allocate me to um, a retail shop Y. So every day I wake up and I go to the retail shop and I pack uh, groceries there. And I'm working for three months. What is the importance or the significance for me to understand what does three months mean to me? Now, what is important to understand in terms of when you read the, the current amendment, uh, which I generated to the, to the LRA, that you must understand what a temporary service means, right? Mm-hmm. And a temporary service means, of course, quick for a client that does not or that is that is a period not exceeding three months. So, so the three months would be the maximum that you can be hired by someone to do work of a temporary nature. Sure. Right. So immediately when it starts going over three months, it it, it then appears, you know, at least on face value that the work is on is on a continuous basis, so longer than three months. So what a lot of companies do is that they engage they engage a lot of employees under the labor broker. And they forget that, well, the work that they're actually sourcing via the labor broker is more continuous. It's not going to last three months. It's going to exceed the three months, mm. right? And the moment the three-month period passes, that work is not is going to be seen as work that is not a temporary service, right? So so that is, that is the threshold. The three months is the threshold. Mm. Of course, there they, they are other... There are other considerations that that you have to factor in as well, but of course the law as it stands right now, you know, the three months is the threshold. And if the work is longer than that, then the employees can prove, and the unions can prove that this work is on a continuous basis, and you know there is a need for this type of work exceeding three months. Then the deeming provisions will kick in. 
Let me bring in uh, a stuff to uh, here, Moleko uh, Pakedi. Uh, um, thank you so much for for for, for joining us. Um, on the law report, maybe just give us a sense of where, and I know it's, this has been, um, perhaps most of the unions in this country have have waged, I guess, a, a fight, a, a fight that seemingly has gone on for years. Where are we? Um, where are we today? Are we making progress? Are unions sitting in a position where they can feel at last we can celebrate? No, no good evening, and thanks for for having me. The the unfortunate case is that the amendment as is the case has created a tussle between employers and employees at which uh, an adjudication would have to determine and deem such employee permanent Mm. or other employer on an indefinite basis. And that loophole creates basically a room for employer to circumvent the law alternatively to even exploit the the, the the provision itself. Mm. The reality of the matter is that temporary as in temporary should be temporary. You can't have something that is permanent temporary. Mm. That's the essence of what employers are seeking to do. Mm. If employees are employed on a temporary basis, section one nine eight A now has addressed that point. At the completion of three months, such workers are deemed permanent employees of the client. In this case the principal employer. Mm. And the unfortunate case is that uh, the both the client and the uh, 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 service provider for the telecom of weight have unfortunately found a very exploitative uh, point of convergence wherein the employee would be claimed to be the provider's employee whereas the main employer will continuously imply that the deeming provisions have not necessarily been met. And mm. that's where the essence of the point I was raising came in, that the amendment created a room for further uh, endless litigations that would not help. But the means of matter should have laid to rest this issue. Mm. Because the means of fundamentally dealt with two aspects. The first aspect was to deal with the exploitation, but the unfair labor practice nature of this type of type uh, um, employment relationship. In that, an employee must have direct employment relationship with his or her employer, more so if the work is permanent rather in nature, that person should be offered a permanent or an indefinite contract. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, the uh, employee who is at the point of, of, of work mm-hmm. should not be treated different from any other worker who is doing a similar job. And with that in mind, NUMSA would have managed to push the amendment further to clarify what its intended purpose was. But the recent application that we see going to the fiscal uh, seems to intend to undermine that particular judgment. And so far as we are concerned, as South, the best solution would have been banning. We have campaigned for that of the labor brokers. We have accepted with the pain of pinch of salt the amendment as it is. We have supported the NUSA judgment. But we are quite disgusted at this attitude that is displayed by employers of, of, of lazy. Mm. And that's why we we will be uh, awaiting the judgment on this matter with quite uh, uh, interest. If you've just joined us, um, we're talking about labour broking. We're talking about how it affects you. We're talking about and 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 sometimes we take for granted that it could affect you as an employee, but it could also affect you as an employer. Um, because the on the other side of the coin, there there is the debate that says um, I, I should be able to get labour 
on a short-term basis. And, and of course, this three months does invite a little bit of debate because, you know, what does deeming provision mean? What if it's not three months, it's just three months and two weeks? And, and I'll get the experts to, to comment on that. But I also look forward to your questions and your comments. Do give us a call. The number to dial is 86 I'm going to take a break. And when I, continue, when I come back, we're going to continue our chat. Know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matuening-Bill. Welcome back. Uh, we're talking labor broking. We're talking labor law. Let me let me let me ask this practical question, and I and I think I alluded to it before before we took a a, a break. If I can ask you, uh, Mutusi uh, Mudisani, um, around what does it mean deeming? Um, you know, uh, what does deeming mean in in the context of Section One Ninety Eight, Capital Letter A, uh, particularly uh, Subsection Three B, when we talk about deeming, what is what does that mean? Um, does it mean um, that if I'm working, when that when when three months ends, I can go home and tell my wife that or, or my girlfriend or whatever it is I have that secular permanent, uh, or does that mean um, that there's now yet another fight to determine whether uh, indeed I am that? But then what would then deeming mean? And I think I think it's what. Uh, uh, that the Pakiri was talking about. Uh, he, he, I'll, I'll let him come in as well and clarify, but I just want to understand when we're talking about three months, you are then deemed to be empl- uh, employed, one, by the client, and two, on an indefinite period, on an, an indefinite basis. What do you sign I don't know what happened there. You want to give that a shot again? Yes, I'm saying, so what would happen under the circumstances is that if, if employees are, are engaged by a temporary employment service, um, that, that being a labor broker, and a three-month passes, and they seem that, look, we, we, we are performing work, which is not a, a temporary service for, mm. for, for this labor broker at its client, right? So to declare to declare their rights in law, so that means to to be deemed in terms of one eight eight uh, capital A B one, they would they would then declare these people the CCMA to be deemed or the the, the bargaining council under which they fall in that instance uh, to be declared employees or to be deemed employees of that client. So that means that they're saying that we don't want to be recognized as employees of the temporary employment service or the labor broker. We mm. want to be declared employees of the person to whom we provide the service to the client. Because we have seen that the work that we do is the same as those people, you know, who are employed directly by that by that company. Mr. Pagedi said that uh, quite correctly so that, you know, you, you, you would want a direct employment relationship and not this thing of our service being procured through a labor broker. So the deeming provision, what it essentially does is that it amends the position of permanent employment uh, or the direct employment relationship, rather, mm-hmm. right? And and the, the deeming provision would be more of a declaratory uh order, if I may put it like that, or a declaratory award, which makes it specific that these employees are the employees of the client and not the temporary employment service or labor broker in those circumstances. So 
Of course, there are things that you would need to prove if you're an employee wanting a declaration of these rights, mm. you know, whereas through a CCMA dispute or a labor, I mean, or a bargaining council dispute. So essentially, that's what it means. Uh, Pakid, if I can just bring you in here, you alluded to a level of dissatisfaction that you had with the amendments. Is, is this the, the, the gist of, of your discontent? I mean, I mean make, make no mistake, uh, as just a human element, we reject this tripartite alliance and tripartite relations in terms of uh, the employment practice. It's not that we are excited at the regulations or excited at the amendments. We are on record that it doesn't and it shouldn't be allowed that someone can employ someone and literally enslave that to another party. So we have rejected the employment of this nature altogether in spite of the improvement that has happened into this state of relation. I think, I think that must be clear. The second part that I want to emphatically address on this question is that it is now uh, the values are shifted up on the employee over and above what the amendment is saying to go and seek a determination or an authority at the relevant board. So an employee, as we, we thought it was going to be the case, when the amendment were made, when NUMSA won the case, we thought we had passed that, that battle. That the in an event, I complete my three months, I am now a permanent employee, and that's what we as staff to at least understand the amendment and the related uh, arrangement to be. You are an employee, directly and you're going to be entitled to the same benefits and privileges and job security as the employee of the client. But now the unfortunate change is that you have to go and put that to a test. And that's where the deal provisions comes in. That's where all those factors or conditions need to be met to satisfy one that indeed this employee is now a permanent employee of the client. A worker wants to work for this Mr. employer who is based at his or her premises and continue to render the services. Mm. It doesn't, then it shouldn't necessarily be through a third-party arrangement. You were quite correct when you were uh, uh, the point that I was making. That it cannot be correct that we have now created a further layer of burden on workers or trade unions to go and make that test. Mind you, the case that is sitting, uh, 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 that will be heard soon, it's a case that seems to be suggesting to be going the opposite direction of the NUMSA constitutional control, if you will. Because it brings an element that the employee who thought that they are now permanent, they are not. And the court to an extent has succeeded to that. And I'll tell you where this thing is coming from. This thing is coming from employers, in this case, the labor brokers, now declaring themselves as independent contractors. In the law, there is a provision for independent contractors, which is completely different from TER, because temporary employment services are not the same as the independent con- and we understand that line very clear. But the unfortunate case is that they are now trying to migrate by obviously conventing the law from being the TES as you understand it and now they need to be a particular service provider rendering assistance service and it can't be correct and must be uh, rejected with the content it deserves. And and, and and I suppose that the compromise that was done at Nedleg to celebrate this amendment hoping that it's going to wipe the injustices that our workers are subjected to is now becoming a reality that it is not necessarily the case. And as after we have been quite on record rejecting that particular uh, compromise settlement, and this is what we have to deal with, unfortunately. I think the struggle continues in this regard. I think let me let me from a, from an economic point of view, and 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 I know that there are 
there are different sides of, of the story. If I can bring in Sviso uh, uh, Skenjan and get a, an, an economic point of view, particularly as regards the role of Nedlak, um, because the labor laws in this country are supposed to be almost consensus-based, where where uh, people meet and, and diff- from different sectors and, and fight these issues out to a point where the legislation represents somewhat fairly the the broader views of of all involved how's that working for us um it's a tricky question Um, (laughs) and sort of every time you want to you know referendum based um almost isn't it no absolutely and 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 i think you know the the existence of netlack is important Mm. um uh, because it becomes a platform through which we can collectively journey towards more equitable labor outcomes in South Africa. Mm. And bringing in, um, in essence, it's really supposed to be a platform where we truly socially contract, um, you know, bringing in uh, uh, business as well as labor and civil society to ensure that we've got equitable labor outcomes. Mm-hmm. I think I think the the challenge has, certainly been around how do we use legislation to inform the labor outcomes that we desire, right? And I've, I've, I've often lamented that in the context of the South African economy, we've tended to use more carrot and less stick. And 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 that in of itself is that, you know, you'll hear private sector saying you need to incentivize us to transform, which makes absolutely no sense, right? Transformation is not something you incentivize the business. It's something that ought to be. It's the kind of society that we need to have in an economic marketplace. We need to have a representative society. We've got to need to, we also got to depart from a sustainable base. And, and this is where I feel like the challenge around using carrot to try and incentivize business to journey towards a more inclusive and more sustainable economic marketplace from a labor point of view is certainly not the right way to approach it. And this is why I made the example earlier on of Iceland where eventually they just got to a point where they outlawed it completely and said where there is gender pay disparity, it's illegal. And of course, uh, they, they don't have as much of a, of a race-based disparity, but in essence, they've outlawed paid disparity. And and so when we then look at South Africa, and so we've got a particular legislative infrastructure that can work and that has shown its efficacy in certain ways, let us use that to ensure that this economy truly does become the economy for all who participate in it. South Africa is the sixth hardest working economy in the world in terms of hours worked per week. Yet we've got the largest wage inequality in the world. We've got the the, the fastest growing uh, food poverty incidents in, 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 in the global context as well as inequality. And so all of these things are things that truly are showing us just how pandemic the issue of, of, of wage disparity in South Africa is. And we truly need to, I think, uh, migrate and move towards, I think, more uh, harder stances towards ensuring that we've got equitable workplaces. <laughs> you know, some of these stats, they, 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 they're quite shocking um, to, to kind of, one, listen to and, and comprehend in, 
in in the context of the society in 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 in, in which we live we if we're working so hard and, and I'm, I'm also just connecting that even with issues of transportation and how scattered our land is so <laughs> it's it's it 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 it, it seems um, it, it seems it seems sort of uh, uh, that our workers are, are, are in, in in very bad circumstances. But if we are that, if we're working so hard, if we if 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 we give so much to to I guess enterprise, why is it that we're not attracting uh, a lot of manufacturing at home? A lot of um, and and I guess it could be in some ways an an, an unfair question because it it sort of is too broad, but one would think that if I hear that this country has the the, the most hardest working uh, bunch of people and there isn't any human rights violations as in some other countries that may work harder than us, why is it that we don't seize the the good side or the silver lining to that? Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting question and the number of ways in which to look at the answer. Mm. So we have often thought that um, if we get economic growth, we'll get jobs, mm. which has proven to us we've had 13 years of jobless growth in the context of our economy. And we also thought that, uh, or, or not necessarily that we thought, but we've also seen an economy that's uh, been exposed. And what happened is that we had sectors that were densely populated from a labor point of view and and that existed under protectionist apartheid era where from 1991 and i make example of textiles industry 1991 we became a, a signatory to the world trade organization um and and then we were given five years in essence to democratize or liberalize our trade terms so we had tariffs that had to move from about 70 percent all the way down to 18 percent by 1996. what happened post 1996 and then you saw import intensity going all the way through the roof um and and that meant that we were importing more just to sustain the economy because the sectors that were currently were previously under protectionist regimes couldn't compete on price and this is often what we, we talk of as a comparative advantage and so and so your your economic planning has got to live, uh, take advantage of the areas in which you you are able to compete globally and so this is why I always talk about the comparative advantage and say Right now, South Africa is the largest exporter of citrus. We're number two exporters of macadamia nuts, and, and, and we're a large exporter of avocado, and we can keep going, which means we've got a comparative advantage there, and therefore we, those are the sectors that maybe we should be driving towards the industrial building and industrial base on the back of that. We should be having factories um, you know, uh, being erected create avocado oils, guacamole, um, etc. We should be having all of those sectors supporting those sectors. And also we've got to have a knowledge economy that, that uh, informs the genome production, etc. I mean, we're still buying seeds from, from other countries in the world, yet we're the largest producer of those fruits, right? Those are the things that don't make sense. And so you've got to align your economic planning to also the things that you're able to participate competitively in a global marketplace, also in a way that can absorb the kind of labor force that we've got. We've got 76% of the labor force that's semi-skilled and unskilled, which means 
the sectors that we take to market have got to be sectors that are able to absorb that labor force at a competitive rate. So these are all the things that go into context that explain why uh, our manufacturing contribution GDP went from 28% to GDP in 1996 to now what we're seeing is about 11 12% to GDP because we've lost productive capacity. And these are some of the questions that uh, are, are not being addressed when we are also answering the labor question. When we talk about protectionism, which seemed at a point like as if it it were a swear word that's what we're seeing happening in the united states and 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 through through donald trump their president Mm. and it seems to me uh not as an economist and not looking at it with as sharp an eye as yours but it seems to me that it works because pre-covid 19 the the economy had hit and uh an an, a relatively uh, high and whether it was all time or, or for a long time, whatever the benchmark was, but it was certainly doing well. Um, and and even in a context of South Africa, we seemed to be doing well. People were more employed. Is 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 these tariff? Are these tariffs such a bad thing? Where or, or do they tend to benefit the powerhouses? Because I'm pretty sure that some countries are more happier with less tariffs than others? It's an important question and there's a piece of work that I, I actually once put out that, that said um, there's a difference between economic nationalism and uh, protectionism and the line is very thin between the two. Mm-hmm. And so one looks, uh, economic nationalism is focused on capacity building and saying how do we incubate a sector until it's able to compete globally. And so it's literally saying that this is a fragile child, let's give it the support so that ultimately it can give us the real value that we need. That economic nationalism, when you talk about protectionism, it's really around the laziest form of thinking of saying that um, everyone is doing things like, it's like that kid that takes the soccer ball um, home with him when he's not scoring or he's losing the game. That's exactly what protectionism is. Is that everyone is competing better than you and all you do is you increase, you lift your tariffs to make them less competitive. Mm-hmm. And and what that does is that when you are in a, a, an economic marketplace right now that can't allow you to operate in a vacuum, Mm-hmm. We because we are an exporter of vehicles, we're an exporter of agriculture, and so what's going to happen is that the other trade partners will say, if you don't want to play nice with us, we won't buy your mm-hmm. goods too. The retaliation kicks in. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and we've seen that happening with the copyright amendment bill in the US and AGOA and all of that stuff. As soon as the, uh, the, we get into a space where we're not playing nice, mm-hmm. it can have very high economic impacts for the country, particularly for our trade relations. And so you've got to then play by the rules in which they, in the economic marketplace that you you participate in. You can't want some of the rules and not want some of the other rules. And I think this is where protectionism truly becomes problematic because its focus is not about building capacity, but it's about preventing competition. And that's very, very problematic. Which is where you look at economic nationalism and saying, let's incubate the sector 
better until it grows to a particular point where it can compete. And that, for me, is much more productive from a South African point of view, where certain sectors need to be incubated until they're able to get to a point of truly being able to compete globally. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we continue our discussion talking labor law, taking, uh, talking labor brokerage. But, of course, to talk about this, you need to understand the context, the economic context, um, the history as well. Because when we're talking about labor broking, I mean, some people even equate it to slavery. So long history of selling labor has culminated into various forms um, and what others now describe as modern-day slavery. But, but of course, others call it a, a, an important um, business necessity and in fact some courts have actually said there is absolutely nothing wrong with selling somebody else's labor and that's really the conversation tonight where we're talking about labor broking we're going to take a break and when we uh, come back we continue our chat know your rights know the law the law report with michael matwining bill welcome back uh, we're talking labor broking we're talking labor law joining me on the line are my guest uh mutusi uh, mudisane he's an attorney at uh, cn pokuja attorneys incorporated as well as fistos ganjana chief economist and uh, muleko pakedi uh, deputy general secretary for uh Saftu. and we're talking about labor broking we're talking about labor law any call uh, any question that you may have for my guest number to dial 08 Six double zero double zero nine five nine. If I can just sort of get a, a legal point um, uh, here, that the Mudisan, which is around um, w- w- assuming I'm deemed, and and it seems to me a leap to say that if you are deemed to be an employee, you somehow become employed for an indefinite period of time. I, I, is it indefinite period of time? Because I'm thinking that the law must still recognise that there are a different employment regimes. So I may not need you for three months, but I could need you for 12 months. And, and, or I could need you for 18 months, but certainly not for an indefinite period of time. Does it follow that at the expiry of the three months, I then become permanent or, or is there yet another debate around, well, actually, you're not a temporary uh, uh, employee, but perhaps you are 12 months or 18 months or two years and and also think about it in the context of um farm workers and and i think uh uh, uh has focused a lot on um agricultural sector for a lot of those people their work is seasonal for example and uh, and and some some farmers who are growing in scale prefer not to employ people and they tend to use labor brokers where somebody comes in with a crew of people does the things that needs to be done for four or five months and off they go until the another group of people come for the harvesting or whatever the case might be so what 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 are we to understand what 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 really is the consequence where are we uh have ha, have our, our freedom to contract somehow fallen away so the law recognizes the fact that uh, an employer and employee have got the right to regulate their employment relationship. What Section 198 and the subsequent amendments which were brought into effect by the LRA Amendment of 2014 recognizes that labor brokers have been brought into the picture in order for the employer to circumvent the rights and obligations of certain workers. So what they will effectively do is they they would sort of outsource a certain function and have that being done by a labor broker. But the true question here that must be answered is, is the work that is being done by the placed 
employees. So the the employees engage through a labor broker, even of a temporary nature. And the definition, of course, of the temporary services is quite the, the one which will give us the answer to that question. We, we I, I heard you in, in, in your question talk about uh, work which is genuinely you know, seasonal work or work of a temporary nature. The law understands that. That is why if employees would want to be deemed permanent employees of the client and not that of the labor broker, they would have to then lodge a dispute with the CCMA. And of course, as uh, Comrade Pagedi has said, the owners would be on them to prove that the work which they have been engaged for is... Is, is, is an ongoing work and is not of a temporary nature. So there are there is work which would be genuine for you know it's work which could be seen as genuinely short term employment. Then you know the law recognizes that, but 198 and its uh, amendments recognize that you know the position which has been created by the introduction of labor brokers has been more of you know sort of uh, a way of escaping the obligations that they should have towards those employees because what the labor brokers essentially do is that they come in and play the role of an employer on an indefinite basis. Mm -hmm. And the workers will will be sitting there after three months, after a year or two, and they'll be saying, but hold on, we've been here for longer than what we had anticipated. So that is when they then have the right to go to your CCMAs and your bargaining councils and make out an argument before a commissioner and say, the work that we've been engaged for is ongoing. In fact, we've got competitors in the company where we are rendering that service who are doing the same work as us, but we are being treated on less favorable terms and conditions because we're being engaged by or through the labor broker. And we would then like to, 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 to put a stamp on our rights as employees by being deemed you know, workers of the client itself so that we can enjoy the same rights uh, in terms and conditions of employment as those workers who are, who are working directly for that uh, uh, client itself. And and so the 198 is is, 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 is is trying to make sure that that situation is at least navigated to the advantage of the employee. Of course, and and that Pagir has pointed out, you get a lot of companies undermining it. The Chep case, which is going to the Labor Appeal Court tomorrow, of course, they raise an argument to say, no, this is not a labor broker. It is a, it is an independent contractor. And I mean, that, that just undermines the whole uh, amendment on its own. Because, you know, if you then have to speak about whether the contract between the labor broker and the employees you know, what it says, and then the contract between the labor broker and the client, you know, what it says, you, you, you are missing the point. The point should be, if we look at the work that the employees have been, have, have been uh, placed to go and do or have been procured to go and do, is it temporary? Is it a temporary service by its very nature? And a lot of companies, of course, will try and say, yes, it is, because, um, you know, instead of, like in the CHEP case, the CHEP argument is that, well, we, we have hired the employees to, the, the labor broker has hired the employees to fix the pellets, and that is not something that we do at CHEP. But now, CHEP is the one, you know, that leases out the pellets. The pellets comes and need refurbishment. Now, instead of them doing that refurbishment, 
they hire a labor broker to do it. But now, is there going to be that work if there is no the pellet to begin with? But, but so, is, is, is the, the argument, as I understand, and I, I just want to unpack it for Afropolitans, is, well, we actually don't provide you with labor. We provide you uh, with the pellets. Yes. <laughs> yeah. but, but that's not correct. You see, yeah. if, you look at, if you look at the, 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 the company profile of, of, of CHEP, you know, it 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 it, it leases out or it outsources those uh, those pellets to other companies. Now, when they come back, when they being brought back to them, maybe they might have been broken in the logistics of of, of transportation of those goods where the pellets are used. Now, when they when, when they are then in a bad condition, they get given to this company as a labor broker who hires these employees to refurbish these pellets and then bring them back or take them back to chip, right? Now the question is, in this instance, can we really say that that refurbishment job is of a temporary nature? And the answer to that is a simple no, because because those pellets, they, they will be repeatedly coming back to them to be fixed. Mm-hmm. So so you, you cannot separate, you cannot separate the refurbishment process and the existence of the pellet, which is what CHEP is using, or the, the pellet, which is what CHEP is using to, to render a service to other clients, right? So, so that work, on it, on, let me just make another example. Sure. If, if let's say an energy supplier, in this instance, uh, hires people to, to, you know, to read meters and, you know, look at electricity supply and all of that, but it does that through a labor broker. Uh, the question now would be, are those workers working a temporary employment? Because now, you know, are they providing a temporary service? Because now, as long as there is generation in selling mobile electricity, their service will always be needed. Right? So for, for, for that company to come and now say, well, but, you know, this is of a temporary nature. It's not correct. The work that those employees that those employees are rendering, together with the work or the, the business that the main company, the client, is providing elsewhere as a business, if they go hand in hand, that work cannot be of a temporary nature. But, but I mean, it's, it's, is, is, is that sort of, I mean, using your meter reading example, um, which, which of course is funny. Um, <laughs> Uh, in the same way the utility company would need meter readers, it would also need lawyers, it would need accountants perpetually. So it, it, and, and, and that's the, that's the, that's the real interesting part of it is that how do you then distinguish? And, and, and I think in the packet, you, you, you can jump in as well. Yeah. Because, yeah. because, because here's the thing. We, we all, a comp, a comp, if, if you are a, um, a, a department of education. There are some things that are inherent to to what you need, and that's why there is such a thing as uh, contracting out the work. Law firms like us, we get subcontracted to do the legal work, even though the the, the, the respective companies have the internal lawyers. And it and so it goes for um, you know the the issue of I mean security companies as well. Um, I can my business can decide. Um, and 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 that is that uh, the that 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 case uh, the Mulasi case, um, and that is but pre the amendments to say. But I, I the, the my my decision is yes, I'll need the service, 
but it turns out that I save more money if I employ or I, I receive the service through another company where that company renders the service. And all I have to do is focus on my core business, which could be uh, logistics, which could be law, but I don't have to supervise a security guard and the security protocols. I think if I may just advance counsel's point. Mm. Look, firstly, we need to just walk back quite briefly how the question of labor broker came into play. Yeah. Let's in South African context and how it has played itself up to thus far. Uh, in the early stages of us running into the globalization agenda and uh, reorganization of workplaces, determination of core and non-core. Uh, it then played itself that uh, employers would definitely embark on a process to basically reduce workforce. Not because they don't need those particular uh, uh, grouping of people, but they believe they could be better managed elsewhere. Uh, in this case, you're talking about talents. It goes without saying that chat needs pilot through and through. That as it may be, uh, it could be the case that the very same workers are even at the premises of uh, of chats. It could even be true that uh, this very same uh, uh, workers or companies entirely may rely on the provision of just human beings. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they don't bring a wood, they don't do, it, it could be just that. Mm. Now the question becomes relevant that in dealing with uh, labor relations, in dealing with labor law, in dealing with uh, labor rights and human rights, should it be quite acceptable that uh, uh, Moleko Pagedi would continue going around dumping people at various workplaces, whereas he does not have any um, uh, work that basically is performed? Mm. And it goes to the question that then the law becomes a bit... Uh, uh, diluted, I'll use the phrase, because the poor worker happens not to know who, who exactly the, is he or she working for. I'm placed at Moleko Pagedi, but I'm working for Mr. Pantonor, and as a result thereof, uh, there is another worker of Mr. Pagedi who have got similar, uh, who are doing the same work, but the conditions are absolutely not the same. Mm. Mine is to come on a paycheck, take my card, and pass the remainder thereof to a worker and continue with what I'm doing. The essence of the matter, I suppose, before the court would be not necessarily a determination of whether this fellow are an independent contractor, because I believe they will fail the test of an independent contractor as, as, as prescribed in the Act. Mm. If the argument was that they are providing this on a fixed term basis, I want to argue that it goes without saying that the client in this case, the main employer, can still engage the employees directly without the... Uh, labor broker and employ them on a fixed-term contract basis. But we must also accept that the fixed-term contract employment has been abused over a period of time. That is why there is now a requirement in the law for you to also ensure that as and when you renew this contract, you don't create what is called reasonable expectation on the part of the employee. Mm. And it becomes the employer's burden to then prove that indeed the expectation is created by the employee on the employee, i.e. repeated renewal of contract um, uh, 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 wouldn't be unfair at the point that the employer now terminate the employment. But equally, even when the employer in- increases the contract of this employee twice or more, 
it goes without saying that it would be this same employer who would have to give a case that's supposed to stand the test of time. That's why the work that this worker is doing and continuing cannot be linked to this particular worker's contract of employment on a permanent basis and directly employed by them. But the point I wanted to also come to is if you have regards to the evolution of the agricultural workers, farm workers, mm. then in this case, it is the domestic workers. You will appreciate that our South African labor um, uh, uh, legislation framework have not necessarily done any service to a worker. You know, you, you, you have farm workers and domestic workers who are not recognized as workers or employees per se over a period of time. Mm. It's only during the dawn of our democratic dispensation that they started to enjoy the rights of any other worker. Recently, if I may counsel, uh, recently you'd have, you'd, have, you'd have learned that uh, domestic workers had to go to court to be part and parcel of the compensation fund. Yes. And they were not part and parcel of the compensation fund. Now, it takes a worker who should come into the space and say, by the way, I'm a worker and I've got this particular right, this particular benefit, and they must be protected by pieces of legislation. But the witnesses in the legislation, they create a situation whereby employers continue to exploit workers. Not only exploit workers, they continue to ensure that the oppression as it is in the country continue to ensure that the sitting grouping of our population continues to get more and less. If I were to bring this question into play, my leader, you would appreciate that most of the workers that are termed employees of temporary employment service providers are actually majority black workers, if I were to say that. Majority of them are so-called skilled or unskilled laborers. But the rest of them, these are people who desperately need jobs. Mm. And most of them, they have got high level of job insecurity without any amount of benefit. Where does this take me? It takes me into how we go about uh, uh, bringing into place legislations in the Republic. You are raising the question of Nedley, and I want to come to that point. Without Oops, let, let's not open uh, uh, that oh, box okay. because we, we have run out of time. Let me thank uh, okay. all, all my <laughs> guests. Uh, you, 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 I, I, I made the mistake of, of closing uh, uh, off yeah. with, the, with, the general, with the Deputy General Secretary of the Union. <laughs> <laughs> my apologies. But really, the expectation cannot continue. We need to talk about it. We need to find a solution to it. And I hope that the gaps in the legislations are covered to the benefit of the work. It can't be that with the power relations that we have in the employment relations, we continue to expect the worker to continue to litigate against employers to bring into play their rights and benefits. Uh, those are my guests, Moleko Moleko Pakedi, Safta Deputy General uh, Secretary, Mutusi um, Mudisani, uh, Attorney or Associate Attorney, and Sfiso Skenjani, Chief Economist. Uh, from me, Michael Mutsoning Bill, it's been a great pleasure. Trust that you've enjoyed that segment of the show. I'll be back again next Wednesday. Good night. That was the Law Report with Michael Mutwining Bill. Kaya FM 95.9. Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Visit kayafm.co.za for more.